All right. Good morning. So good to see a full house here today. This is great. Um, just in case you guys haven't seen in the what's happening, um, we do have someone in the nursery now. So if you have a child, three or under, uh, we do have someone who can look after them during the message uh, portion of our service. So uh, if you're watching online and you didn't know that, uh, keep that in mind. And um, yeah, so we're very thankful uh, to have uh, Katie uh, working in our nursery right now. So, All right, so as Keith said, we're continuing in our series on the parables from the Gospel of Luke today. Took a little break last week to hear from our missionary partners, Evan and Chelsea Burgess, which I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Uh, but we're back in the parables today, and we've got a really interesting parable to look at today. It is uh, a challenging parable. It's even kind of a frightening parable. It uh, refers to a place called Hades, where there's torment and agony. And uh, this is what's known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And there's a lot to talk about here. Um, so uh, we're not going to waste any time. We're just going to get right into it. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for being able to gather together like this, uh, to worship you together. And uh, we just want to... Um, we want to hear from you this morning. We want to encounter you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be attentive uh, to your words uh, as we read them now. Help us to be open, uh, to be changed by them, to be transformed by them, and to be enlightened by them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So this is Jesus speaking. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. 
All right, tough parable. Now, if you've been here at all throughout this series, you know that one of the things we harp on is that if we're going to understand Jesus' parables, we have to look at the context. Who did Jesus say this to? What was going on? And this parable is no different. And what can really help us is just to look a few verses before Jesus gives this parable. If you look at verse 13, this is what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he makes it very clear what he's talking about. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, meaning the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So right before Jesus tells this parable about the rich man and Lazarus, he rebukes the Pharisees for their love of money. And he tells them, look, if you want to serve God, you can't serve money. If you're serving money, you're not serving God. These things are incompatible. So when we hear this parable, we have to remember, okay, this is a call to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, to repent. Which means to change their mind. That's what repenting is. Change your mind. And if you haven't noticed, the last three parables that we looked at are all similar. And that they are all calls for the religious leaders to repent. They're all directed toward the Pharisees, right? Uh, four weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that was a call for the, uh, a one religious leader in particular to repent of thinking that he only needed to love people who were like him. And then three weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the great banquet, which was a call for the Pharisees to repent of rejecting Jesus. Right? Jesus was like their invitation to the banquet, and they were saying, no, we're not interested. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the parables of things lost being found, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And those parables were a call for the Pharisees to repent of being judgmental and unwilling to celebrate the mercy of God when it was demonstrated to people they didn't think deserved it. Right? So those are the last three we've looked at. And now we can add the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to this trend of Jesus using parables to call the Pharisees to repent. This is a call for the Pharisees to repent of their love of money. Money has become their master. Now, you might remember me talking about this a few weeks ago. Um, the Pharisees had adopted what we today might call a prosperity gospel mindset. Have you guys heard this phrase before, the prosperity gospel? Is that familiar at all? And the prosperity gospel is this idea that if you do what God wants, then you are guaranteed to be blessed in this life with health and wealth. So, the Pharisees had taken in this idea, and that meant that when they saw someone who was rich, they saw that person as favored by God. They thought this must be a virtuous person if they're blessed. And if they saw somebody who was poor or disabled, they would think that person must have done something to make God upset. This is the way they thought. So you can imagine how the Pharisees would be reacting as Jesus told this parable, right? Listen to the way it starts. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. 
So the Pharisees are going to be thinking, there's a blessed man. That's the kind of person I want to be like. Oh, purple linen. Ooh, very nice. You know, purple in those days was very valuable to people. Um, It was a, a sign that you had really arrived and climbed to the very top of the social ladder because the only way that you got purple dye was through this very laborious process of people collecting exotic marine snails and then getting the purple dye from the snails. So it was like, I am so rich that I can afford exotic snail dye. You know, this, would be, this would be a sign of just you know, the highest blessing from God. And then when the Pharisees hear about Lazarus, they're going to think, oh, this poor creature... This guy really must be on God's bad side, right? It says that he's a beggar, right? So he needs to beg for his food. He's laid at uh, the rich man's gate. He didn't walk there. That means he's handicapped. He can't get there himself, right? He's covered in sores. He, He longs to just eat the crumbs that fall from rich people's tables. It says the dogs came and licked his sores, which, if you're a dog lover, you might think, oh, how compassionate of them. But that's not what you're supposed to think when you read this. Okay, the Pharisees, uh, they didn't keep dogs as pets. They saw dogs as unclean scavengers. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's painting a picture that's supposed to fill them with horror and disgust. right? Because there's this man who's starving and other starving creatures are coming to him and trying to find sustenance. It's supposed to make... Make you go, oh, how awful. What a, uh, what a condemned, abandoned man, right? Condemned by God. And then Jesus takes the story in a direction that the Pharisees would not expect, right? Both Lazarus and the rich man die, but it's like they switch places. Now Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. But the rich man finds himself in this place called Hades. Hades was the Greek word for the underworld where the dead went. And in Hades, he is in torment. He's in agony, just like Lazarus used to be. So, of course, what Jesus is saying here is that things are not always as they appear to be, right? The prosperity gospel is wrong. Just because someone is rich doesn't mean that they're being virtuous. Just because somebody is poor doesn't mean that God has rejected them. Now, some people, I think this is extreme, some people say what what this parable tells us is that if you're rich, you're bad. And if you're poor, you're good. If you're rich, God hates you. If you're poor, God loves you. And I don't agree with that at all. And I think it's clear from the parable that that's not true because Abraham is seen in a positive light, right? And if you know the Bible, uh, you know that Abraham in his day was very wealthy, very wealthy guy, okay? So the rich man's problem is not that he has a lot of wealth. The problem is that he loves money, like the Pharisees. Money has become his master. And one of the hints of that is his name. Did you catch his name? 
there is no name <laughs> except for the rich man. Now, why is that? Why does Lazarus have a name, but the rich man isn't given a proper name, right? Wouldn't it be more symmetrical just to say the poor man and the rich man? What's the reason for that? Well, here's what I think the reason is. Because Lazarus has an identity that is not defined by wealth or by the lack of it. But the rich man, the rich man doesn't have that. His sense of wealth, his sense of value, his sense of who he is, is fully defined by wealth. He is a rich man. That's who he is. And when you think about it this way, it's no wonder that he's in torment and in agony, right? Because death has separated him from the thing that makes him him, right? If you were to lose right now the most important thing to you in the world, you would be in agony. You would be in torment, right? The rich man's most important thing is his wealth. His whole sense of self is wrapped up in that. So no wonder at death he's in agony. I'm reminded of uh, the witch in Snow White. You guys probably know the story. Right? Every day, the witch looks at the magic mirror on the wall, which cannot lie. There's a magic mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? And the mirror would always answer, you. You are the fairest one of all. But then one day she asks, the mirror can't lie. The mirror says, Snow White is the fairest one of all. And then she's in torment. Right? She's in agony. And she won't rest until Snow White is dead. Why? Right? Because her whole identity is wrapped up in this idea that she is the most beautiful one. You know, if she had a name in a parable, it would be most beautiful one. Right? And so when she's not that anymore, she's in torment. Just like the rich man. Different identity. Same problem. But Lazarus, his identity is rooted in something completely different, right? Not in wealth, not in physical beauty. What is it? Well, the name Lazarus is a clue. Lazarus is short for the Hebrew name Eliezer, which means God helps. God helps. His core identity is that he is a person who is helped by God. How do you see yourself? If we want things to work out for the best in the long run, we need to see ourselves as people who need God's help. And that's not easy for a lot of people to recognize. That requires humility, right? We've got to swallow our pride to say, I can't define myself apart from my creator. I can't do it. It doesn't matter how strong I am, how talented I am, how rich I am, how powerful I am, how beautiful I am. I need God's help. I need God's mercy. I need God's forgiveness. I need God to help me to understand who I truly am. And if I try to define myself apart from him, that leads to nowhere good. Let's talk about this vision of Hades. It's frightening, 
isn't it? Rich man says he's in agony. He describes himself as being in fire. He's thirsty. There's no water. And he can see Abraham and Lazarus from where he is, but there's a chasm that's separating them that can't be crossed. Now you might be wondering, is this a literal description of the afterlife? Should we assume that all these details completely describe the way it is? And if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we have to assume that. The answer I would give to that is not really a yes or a no. And I know that might sound cagey. So stick with me here. I'll try to explain what I mean. We have to remember that this is a parable, right? And all parables are stories that are constructed to make a point or several points. And those points can be true even if all the details are not literally true or, or historically true. That's the way parables work. Now you might say, well, how do you know for sure this is a parable? It might be Jesus just recounting something from history, right? Well, the thing is, it's told in a series of parables. It follows the same format as his other parables. It starts with the same kind of language that his parables usually begin, right? It starts with what? There was a rich man. That's like, there was a man who had two sons. That's like, a certain man was preparing a, a banquet. This is the way Jesus talks when he's going to give a parable. So, parables are stories constructed to make points where the, literal de the details do not have to be literally true in order for the points to be true. Just like, you know, we don't have to um, assume that the story of the prodigal son all played out like that in a literal historical event in order to uh, recognize that the points it makes are true, right? That God is merciful and that he wants us to celebrate when his mercy is shown to others, right? So, um, it's important to recognize that. It's also important to... Uh, recognize that if we do take every detail lit literally, we do end up with a few, a few issues. Like, well, are we really going to assume that people in heaven can watch people suffering in agony? You know, it seems like it would be hard for it to really be heaven if we could see that, right? And then, you know, there's also just the, the fact that in this story, the only people who are mentioned are the rich man, Abraham, and Lazarus, right? You would think if Jesus was intending to give us a literal description of how everything works in the afterlife, that he would mention more people than just those three people in this description. So the fact that there are only three characters, it suggests that this is a parable that Jesus has constructed to make these points, okay? So... All that to say, we've got to be careful. However, a point of this parable is clearly that there is justice in the life after this one. That's clear, right? Can't get away from that. Those who make money their master will not prosper forever. 
and those who trust God to help them will not be disappointed in the end. And uh, if any of us have made money our master, this parable should strike fear in our hearts. It's designed to do that. You know, what we see in this parable is poetic justice. It's, so, it's such poetic justice, right? In life, Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate, which means the rich man must have seen his suffering, probably on a daily basis. He, he walked by the, the Lazarus. <clears throat> he must have known that there were things that he could have done with his immense wealth to alleviate some of Lazarus' suffering. He had to have known that. But he didn't concern himself with that. Right? He, he, he concerned himself with things like exotic snail dye. Even though the rich man and Lazarus could see each other, it was like a chasm was between them, right? Because the rich man would never move in compassion towards Lazarus. And then death comes, and there's a very familiar situation, but the roles are reversed. Lazarus and the rich man can still see each other, only now the rich man is the one who is suffering. And the rich man, he calls to Abraham, he says, tell Lazarus to bring me some water. That line is very revealing. It shows us at least two things. One, it shows us that the rich man knew about Lazarus. I mean, he calls him well, he doesn't call him by name. He says, Abraham, tell Lazarus to do this for me, right? But he knows Lazarus' name. He was aware of him. He can't plead ignorance. And secondly, that request, it shows us that, Lazar sorry, that the rich man still really hasn't reached a point of repentance. He hasn't really been humbled. You know, he doesn't say, oh, Lazarus, I'm so sorry that when you were in this situation, I didn't help you. I realize now that I was wrong. He doesn't acknowledge the justice of what's taking place. There's no apology. You know, he doesn't even give Lazarus the dignity of addressing him directly. What does he do? He basically says, Abraham, please get Lazarus to serve me. He still has the rich man identity, right? I get served. That's how things are supposed to work. But of course, Abraham tells him, Lazarus, I can't help you. Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. Now, isn't that so fitting? Isn't that such poetic justice? In life, the rich man enforced a chasm between himself and Lazarus. He saw Lazarus' suffering. He was within eyesight, but he didn't move toward him. And now in death, the chasm is set in place. He's been given what he wanted. Right? That's poetic justice. This parable reminds me of, uh, I think, a very profound quote from C.S. Lewis who said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, 
thy will be done. The rich man in the parable is the second. The second one. His will has been done. Right? He wanted a chasm between himself and Lazarus. He wanted his identity to be in his wealth. And he's been given both. If we want to experience real life, real peace, now and forever, the key is to start by saying, God, thy will be done. Thy will be done in my heart. Thy will be done in my life. All right, let's look at the end of the parable. For the first time, the rich man shows something other than selfishness. He's concerned for his brothers. He's got five brothers who apparently are living for money, just like he did. And he doesn't want them to end up in this situation. So he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to go warn them. And uh, Abraham answers, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Let them listen to them. Now, again, we have to remember, this was spoken with the Pharisees in mind, right? The rich man and his brothers are stand-ins for the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were people who had the scriptures, right? They were the people who taught the scriptures. They were people who could probably recite the scriptures better than anybody else. They had Moses and the prophets. And yet they had allowed money to become their master. And, you know, they definitely should not have done that because if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that it's clear that the poor and needy should be cared for, that money should not be your master. They claim to be people who love and teach the scriptures, to know them backwards and forwards, and yet it hasn't pierced their hearts. And yet, they're not actually doing what the scriptures say. You know, and the rich man, he objects. He says, no, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to them, well, then they will repent. And Abraham says, well, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. What Jesus is saying there is that for those whose hearts are set on serving money, miracles aren't going to change that. You know, we might say, okay, yeah, these Pharisees were messed up, but if they see Jesus do something really miraculous, really supernatural, then maybe they'll repent. You know, something like, oh, I don't know, someone coming back from the dead. And what Jesus is saying is, if their hearts are in love with money, and they're fixed on that, even if that happens, they're not going to change. You know, and we see the evidence of that throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus does do miracles. He goes around healing people, casting out demons, performing signs and wonders. And what do the Pharisees say? They say, oh, it's by the power of the devil that he's doing this stuff. Right? They find a way to deny the truth that is so plain and so obvious 
Why? Because they don't need a miracle or a sign. They need their hearts to change. But their hearts are unwilling. They're in love with money. They're in love with status. They're in love with power. Sometimes we think, I would change my life if God would just give me a sign. You know, if he would do something really exceptional, do some kind of miracle. And again, what Jesus is saying through this parable is, if your heart is in the wrong place, a sign isn't going to make the difference. It's not going to change that. So don't wait for a sign. Don't demand a miracle. You already have what you need to start following Jesus and moving in the right direction. You might see miracles. You might see signs and wonders. But you have what you need now to take the right steps. And you definitely have what you need to recognize that the love of money is dangerous. You know, as we see in the parable, the love of money can blind us to the suffering of others. I've been watching a TV series called Dope Sick. Has anyone heard of this series? Anybody? Um, It's a dramatic retelling of the opioid crisis and how it developed. And it's all about how Purdue Pharma was so focused on making money that they were unwilling to admit how much their drug was causing suffering and killing people and leading untold numbers of people to become addicted. They loved money so much that they didn't care that they were putting people in Lazarus's position, right? That is the dreadful power of the love of money, right? When it's played out on a large scale. But it can be played out in an individual level in our own lives. I know I've gone a little bit long. We're getting close to the end here. Just got to say a couple more things. If I had to guess, most of us probably don't completely identify with a rich man or Lazarus. We probably feel like we're somewhere in the middle of the two of them. But whatever the case, here's what I want us to hear Jesus saying to us in this parable. Two things. Don't let money be the most important thing in your life. And do not set a chasm between yourself and those in need. Now, I realize it can be really hard to apply that second one there. You know, there is so much need and suffering in the world. When our eyes are open to it, it's overwhelming. And if we committed ourselves to addressing it, you know, that could take up every waking moment of our lives. Totally overwhelming. And even when you really want to do something about it, it can be really hard to know what to do. Now, I want to emphasize, none of us can bear all the problems of the world. We can't do it. But we should ask ourselves, is there someone at my gate who could use some help? You know, take stock of your life. Think about it. For the rich man, Lazarus was right there. He could see him every day. But he set that chasm. So who might be in your life? who's in need, who's suffering, and you have resources to address that, to bless them.
Take some time to think about that. Another question this parable should challenge us to ask is how much of my money do I give charitably? Now, contrary to what some people think, the New Testament never specifies that you have to give X percent of your income. Uh, It never gives a a specific number. Um, But it does call us to give. And it calls us to give generously. There's been a long history of churches challenging people to give what's called a tithe, 10% of their income to charitable giving. And I don't think it's good to demand that of people, to be real uh, fastidious about saying that's the amount that God demands, you know, that you give. I don't think it's good to be legalistic about that. But I do think it's a good goal. I do. 10%. You know, if when you get paid, you can automatically take 10% of that money right right off the top and put it in another account, and it's like, it's like it was never given to you. You just think, this is God's money, and I'm going to find ways to bless with that, to alleviate need, right? That, is a, that can be a very powerful practice in your life, a very life-giving practice for you. Here's something to think about. If Christians all throughout America made that a discipline, there would be incredible resources at our disposal. Uh, I was reading about some research that was done in the 90s, so I apologize, this is outdated. I'm sure all the numbers need to be adjusted at this point. But this will help to give uh, some perspective. So, in the 90s, a team estimated that 30 to 50 billion a year could meet the world's most essential human needs. And the research also determined that the average American Christian was giving away about 2 to 3% of their income. So they asked themselves, well, if we assumed that all the, the Christians in the country upped their giving to 10%, well, how much more money would be available? And uh, they determined that that would result in $65 billion more for overseas missions, $15 billion more for meeting the needs of local communities, And all that includes maintenance of current church budgets. So it's just thought-provoking, right? If the church commits to generosity, how much could we be a blessing to the Lazaruses of the world? Are we willing to be generous? And finally... I want to say for those of us who feel more like Lazarus right now, let me close with the reminder of his name. God helps. Life is hard. But you know, however hard it gets, Jesus is saying, God has not forgotten you. Trust him. If you are finding your identity in the mercy of God, then you are better off than the richest person in the world who's finding their identity and their money. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we really would wrestle with those questions that this parable raises. Father, 
Uh, help us to be generous like you are. Lord, you gave your son, you gave your life to rescue us from sin and death and the devil. Help us to reflect who you are in our generosity as well. Help us to find our identity in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.